Welcome to Breaking the Net, a podcast that covers the latest in politics, entertainment, and business. The world is more connected than ever, and keeping up with the news can be overwhelming. I'm your host, Mehdi Mahil, and throughout this podcast, I'll be doing my best to cut through the noise and break down what's happening in the world right now with the help of some amazing guests. Here's the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Breaking the Net. And today we'll be talking foreign policy. We'll discuss the Iran nuclear deal and state of negotiations, President Biden's democracy summit, backsliding democracy in India, and why the U.S. blacklisted an Israeli company that sells spyware. Joining me today all the way from Paris, France, is director for the Middle East Treaty Organization and author of Middle East Free of Weapons of Mass Destruction, A New Approach to Nonproliferation, Ahmad Kia'i. Ahmad, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Maddie. Nice to hear your voice and to be on your program. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Ahmad, what can you tell my listeners about your work for uh, your, the Middle East Treaty Organization, Me Too, and your work with weapons of mass destruction and trying to make nonproliferation the popular cool thing that countries do these days? Well, it's a fantastic organization. The Middle East Treaty Organization is a civil society a group of people who came together, activists, scientists, professionals, and policymakers. And we have a singular goal of achieving a weapons of mass destruction free zone in the Middle East. And the way we want to go about it is through advocacy, policy, education, capacity building, and also campaigning, so the real activism on the ground. And the whole idea is how do we establish such a WMD free zone, free from all nuclear weapons, chemical weapons and biological weapons in one of the most volatile regions in the world, Middle East. And what that will require is all the 22 Arab countries of the Arab League, plus Iran and Israel, to agree on a treaty text that establishes such a zone. It may seem like it's a pipe dream, one down the road. But the process has already begun. The idea for such a zone dates back to the 1970s for a nuclear weapons-free zone and then expanded to, to include all other forms of weapons of mass destruction. Now, right about 10 days ago, the 22 Arab countries plus Iran and few world powers met in New York for the second time in the United Nations to work on a treaty text establishing such a zone. And what the Middle East Treaty Organization does, it supports these processes. By making their own, we have our own draft treaty that is an evolving open source document that facilitates and contributes to this diplomatic process that is already occurring. So that's what the Middle East Treaty Organization does, along with all other fantastic activities such as webinars, programs, education, and there's a lot that's going on within our organization. And uh, I invite your listeners to check it out on wmd-free.me. So that's the whole thing about METO and the work we're trying to do to establish a WMD-free zone in the Middle East. Sounds both ambitious and important. And you've actually given me uh, a great segue into our first topic. Um, so Iran is fixing to get a nuclear bomb and the U.S., among others, are trying to stop it. 
So a brief background to our listeners. Back in 2015, Iran struck a deal with the United States and a group of other countries, namely Russia, China, the UK, France, and Germany, to stop their attempts to develop a nuclear weapon and make their facilities subject to strict regulations and periodic inspections in return for sanctions relief and a host of other economic incentives. The deal was seen as a major diplomatic win for the Obama administration and was seen as a low-cost method of ensuring Iran does not build a nuclear bomb. However, there was a plot twist, as exists in all stories. In 2018, citing unproven reports that Iran was not in compliance with the terms of the deal and his own unhappiness with it, President Donald Trump withdrew the United States from the deal and reimposed sanctions on Iran. This led Iran to resume uranium enrichment, a critical process for the development of a nuclear weapon, And despite the piling of a host of economic sanctions and efforts by the new Biden administration to re-engage in talks, Iran seems undeterred and has continued to enrich uranium with the goal of creating a significant amount of the radioactive mineral that is weapons grade. uh, Complicated diplomatic efforts are the increasing tensions between Iran and one of its chief regional adversaries, Israel. In the past year, Israel has undertaken a number of drastic measures from assassinating Iran's top nuclear scientists, causing explosions at reactors used to enrich uranium to try and stop the nuclear program, but to no avail. So, Imad, as you just mentioned, you work extensively on weapons of mass destruction issues, and you have previously served as a policy advisor in the American Iranian Council. What can you tell me about what is happening and why people should pay attention to this issue? What are the status of the negotiations as of today? All right. Well, as you have mentioned, these negotiations have been going on for a long time. In earnest, actually started in 2003 to 2005, when Iran first began to enrich uranium. Those negotiations led to what is known as a Paris Agreement between the European powers and Iran that again limited Iran's nuclear program. Unfortunately, then the United States government under President Bush rejected that deal. And so it spiraled into a much more complicated situation with the elections of Iran's then president, Ahmadinejad, who decided, you know what, Iran is going to expand his nuclear program. Now, mind you, while we are talking about this, that to this day, Iran does not possess a nuclear weapon. That's important to note. Yes, Iran does have an Iranian civilian nuclear program and quite an advanced one. And as you rightfully pointed out, Enrichment of uranium is one pathway for a country to go for a nuclear weapon. But enrichment of uranium in itself is not uh, a crime under international law, specifically pertaining to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty that Iran is a signatory to. So Iran, like any other nation, can enrich uranium for civilian purposes. But here's a problem. The international community, specifically United States and some of those countries uh, that Iran has animosity with within the region, including the Israelis, saw Iran's nuclear program as a threat to international peace and security, and one that Iran may decide, once it has mastered the fuel cycle, the nuclear fuel cycle, for dash to dash for a bomb. Now, for that, that's why the negotiations again restarted in 2013. But the climate was very different. Years of sanctions on Iran and Iran's expanding nuclear program made it extremely urgent for the international community to decide, do we approach this issue through diplomacy or do we revert back to what the Americans had done before in Iraq by going into war? So luckily for us, diplomacy was given the priority. And those negotiations started in 2013 that, as you correctly pointed out, in 2015 leads to a diplomatic breakthrough. We have the Iran nuclear deal. Iran's nuclear program under this agreement 
came under the most comprehensive inspection, monitoring, and verification ever pursued on a sovereign state. At no point could Iran divert fissile material for a weaponized program. So the deal was working, but the deal had two sides to it. Iran would limit its nuclear program, but in return, the world powers, the United Nations, European Union, and the United States would remove the sanctions placed on Iran's as somewhat of a push to get Iranians to limit their nuclear program. And that happened. The deal resulted in the first time for UN Security Council resolution and sanctions that are binding by all states in the world to be removed. The European Union, all 27, then 28 countries, voted to remove the EU sanctions on Iran as part of this nuclear deal. Even President Obama removed the US-specific sanctions that targeted Iran's nuclear program. And therefore, for once, we had a major breakthrough of multilateral diplomacy that worked, averted war, and made sure that Iran's nuclear program remains peaceful. But in 2018, Mahdi, what happened? You mentioned it. Many things. Uh, are you referring to President Trump's withdrawal? All right. All right. So why is this important? Why is this important? Because the Iranian nuclear deal was working. Every single report from the international nuclear watchdog known as the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, had verified that Iran is committed to its end of the bargain under the agreement. But correct me if I'm wrong, Ahmad. Not everybody was happy with the deal, right? President Obama faced significant domestic pushback and Israel was notoriously unhappy. Um, I think he, uh, it was Prime Minister at the time, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who came and addressed a joint session of Congress, warning mm-hmm. them that the deal would lead to a faster breakout time. To our listeners, a breakout time is the time from uh, between when a country enriches uranium and actually develops a nuclear warhead, uh, a weapon capable of being deployed at war. Um, and, and he warned of the, like, you know, he made these dire exhortations to a joint session of Congress. He lobbied very hard against the deal um, to no avail. And so Listen, no, I, not everybody Mahdi, was happy with the 2015 deal. Wait, okay. First of all, not everybody has to be happy, number one. we What's the end state we're trying to achieve? The deal said Iran has to have no nuclear bomb. The deal achieved that goal. Iran in return, should have received sanctions relief. That, in earnest, at least on paper, was removed. But yes, you're right. Not everybody was happy about this. The Israeli government under Netanyahu has been pushing and pushing and lobbying for years for continuous pressure, sanctions, sabotage, and ultimately even calling for war under this administration of the Israeli government quite recently. The reason for that is not necessarily that Iran is going to make a quick dash for the nuclear bomb. Instead, it's got to do with much broader geopolitical dimensions that are happening in the Middle East between adversarial countries, may that be Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Israel, and what is their role in an emirate of other issues, may that be in terms of Iran's involvement in Yemen for Saudi Arabia or Iran in Syria for other regional countries to be worried about Iran's role and influence across the region. So this ultimately, yes, is important 
the nuclear program does possess a risk for Iran to then pursue nuclear weapons. But does the Israeli government's position vis-a-vis Iran's nuclear program uh, hold water when they are for years, for years? Netanyahu hasn't been preaching the Congress only a few years ago. He has been looking into his uh, crystal ball and uh, <laughs> making the predictions that Iran would have a nuclear weapon back in 1990. You were not even born then. And we're talking about this is being continuously happening for every couple of years where Israel sees Iran's nuclear program as a direct threat to its existence. It was enough to Listen, the Trump administration to withdraw from the deal. President Trump came into his uh, uh, into the White House with one major agenda to reverse everything that Obama had done, and one of the key diplomatic achievements, foreign policy achievements of the Obama administration, was the Iran nuclear deal. So President Trump didn't make it uh, a secret. Even during his campaigning, he said, "This is the worst deal in the world. This is the blah blah blah." You know how he spoke, and he was already opposed to when he gets into the office to get the United States out of this deal. And he came under a lot of pressure and lobbying, not just by the Israeli government, but also by some other regional countries such as Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. It is no surprise that after uh, President Trump came into office, his for- first foreign visit was to Israel and Saudi Arabia. Not Mexico and Canada, which is a tradition for American presidents to make their first uh, foreign trips. The guagmai that we are in right now, that brings us to today, that there's been since 2018, there's been an effort to bring back the United States into compliance, so back into the deal. And Iran, to give them credit, waited a whole year until they decided to reverse and go back against their own commitments under Iran, uh, under the nuclear deal by saying that we have waited one year for the Trump administration to get back into the deal and remove the sanctions that it reinstated and then expanded. Iran is not there yet, but it does have the technical and scientific knowledge on how to go about doing that. But the decision to do so still has not been made. And here is why it's so important that these efforts in Vienna, which just concluded their seventh round of talks, to be able to somehow bridge the differences between the Iranians and the Americans, amongst other of the state parties to disagreements, being Russia, China, France, UK, Germany, and the European Union, and for them to come to some compromise whereby Iran can feel, again, trust, uh, trusting of this agreement, whereby these sanctions can be removed once and for all. The Iranian nation of 85 million has been under these draconian sanctions for years. It has decimated people's living and savings, and it has made Iran's economy uh, left in shatters. Is that what we want to do? Is that what is going to force some people within the Iranian government to decide, you know what, we are paying all the cost of doing something that we are not even guilty yet of, which is having a nuclear bomb. And what is more crazy is that while Netanyahu and the Israeli government of today 
is preaching about Iran's ambitions or possible dash for a nuclear bomb. The only nuclear weapon state in the Middle East is Israel. Well, I'm glad you bring up Israel because there were news reports that there are current disagreements between the United States and Israel on how to handle things. So Israel, as we're going to touch on later, um, is continuing to trying to unilaterally stop and take tactical actions um, to suppress uh, Iran's nuclear ambitions right through cyber attacks. There were a couple of explosions on a bunch of reactors. As I mentioned earlier, they assassinated Iran's top nuclear scientist. Um, Mm -hmm. The United States finds these efforts unproductive at best. Um, and reductive at worst, right? And they've tried warning their Israeli co- uh, counterparts uh, that maybe a diplomatic solution is what bridges long-time peace. But I wanted to ask you about this difference in opinion, and I also wanted to ask you about another another aspect that no one seems to be willing to vocalize, um, and I'm sure we'll get a very strong reaction. My hot take is that, you know, back in the Cold War, history lesson time. Back in the Cold War, the United States and Russia were always on the brink of nuclear war. But the Mm -hmm. only thing that kept them away was the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, right? Otherwise known Mm -hmm. as MAD. The fact that if the United States attacked Russia or vice versa, it ensured total annihilation of both countries. And perhaps there'd be like casualties in other countries as well. Wouldn't it be in the interest of regional peace and then again, I am not I am not for proliferation to allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Israel has nuclear weapons, which, of course, they've been strategically ambiguous about. They don't answer with a yes or a no. Um, they're not uh, signatories to the non-proliferation uh, treaty. Um, wouldn't wouldn't the region benefit or would it open an arms race? Saudi Arabia would look to develop a weapon. The United Arab Emirates, another country you mentioned, would look to develop a weapon. Egypt would look to develop a weapon. Mm -hmm. Or or would it actually stabilize the region? Uh, Because, you know, there are other parallels we could look to. Pakistan and India, two other uh, nuclear-powered states, which Mm -hmm. we'll also talk about in a bit. Um, you know, they have their border skirmishes. They, they've had full on blown wars, but they've never escalated to the level of total annihilation because both know the cost of nuclear war. So wouldn't it be in the interest of regional peace just to entertain the idea that even if Iran did get a nuclear weapon, it is not the absolute worst case scenario? Of course, again, I do not endorse any more countries getting nuclear weapons, but I wanted to hear what your thoughts are on that. Maddie, I mean, this argument was made by Kenneth Waltz, and he said, okay, you know what, um, if there is some uh, level of nuclear um, uh, playing field between Iran and Israel, because Israel doesn't have a regional uh, sort of um, balancing act when it comes uh, to another country having nuclear weapons, maybe this will actually balance things out, and as you said, may even result in some stability and peace. I'm 100% against that uh, formulation simply because my purpose or my belief is that we don't need nuclear weapons, period. I don't think uh, the Russians need it, the Americans need it. It does not provide us security. It does not provide us any form of stability. Not only that, if there is a human error, if there is actually a hot conflict with the advents in advances in cyber technologies if they're you know the silos that uh, house these nuclear warheads are hacked into and then you have a false flag uh, um, sort of launch of these warheads are we going to go for that uh, model of our future in uh, trusting that these few nuclear weapon states have everything in uh, in order when we have a historical instances of how close we have gotten to destroying not all, only our adversaries but the planet itself 
So this is an existential question that we have to actually address, that nuclear weapons are not just a threat between uh, Iran and Israel. It is literally can start a complete uh, uh, self-destruction of our human race. Uh, we have enough issues in hand in the region to address and to bring into this mix nuclear weapons is just madness. And that is why the, what we propose actually within the Middle East Treaty Organization, the, this whole concept of the WMD free zone in the Middle East is that, wait a minute, Iranians don't have the nukes yet. Mm-hmm. The nuclear deal worked. So let's get that back onto the table. Let's make that stronger. And not only that, let's find the way whereby we can actually get Israeli government to realize that it's sitting on its own existential threat, having housed nuclear warheads on its soil. That these are targets. These are targets that would unleash fissile material, radiation, and carnage on its own population if there is a conventional attack on Israeli nuclear weapons targets. And the fact that the Soviet Union and the Russians and the United States managed to go through the Cold War by not destroying each other and the rest of us is uh, down to a lot to do with luck. Because if you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, we were only 15 minutes away from a nuclear war. Let's not uh, um, make the prediction that just because we haven't destroyed uh, our human race through nuclear weapons yet, that that will not be the case in the future. Actually, what is even crazier right now is that there's a special clock, Doom's clock, by the, um, doomsday, atom- clock. the doomsday clock, and it's never been closer to, uh, to midnight than we are today. And that's r- the reason why it is even more important to put all of our efforts into diplomacy, into advocacy, into identifying ways and solutions, innovative solutions through policy on how we can can get these governments to realize that nuclear weapons does not provide them security. The nuclear weapons of Israel, even with their policy of ambiguity and opacity, has not stopped the Palestinian resistance movements, Hamas, or even Hezbollah to shoot rockets at Israel. It has not stopped even the protesters that are throwing stones in the streets. It is not a viable solution to the conflicts that we're facing today. Well, that's actually another great transition to our next news item, talking of ticking clocks and democratic (laughs) uprisings. So the clock seems to be ticking on democracy, or so is the opinion Mm. of the U.S. government. Last week, President Biden convened a summit of democracies involving more than 100 nations in an effort to marshal democracy against rising authoritarianism around the world. As part of the summit, the U.S. promised $424 million in funding to uh, to bolster independent news media, combat corruption and eight civil society groups and democratic activists. The gathering came against the backdrop of rising autocratic tendencies around the world and as the U.S. itself faces strong anti-democratic headwinds domestically. The summit was lambasted by a few countries. China and Russia, who were not invited to attend, as a weak attempt by the U.S. to advertise its so-called flawed form of governance to the rest of the world. Critics have also pointed out that the U.S. should prioritize combating undemocratic forces from within to serve as a better example for the other countries it called together. Ahmad, what is your opinion on the summit? Uh, You know, aside from the funding announcement, there doesn't seem to be any concrete policy plan to fight creeping autocracies around the world. So it just feels like a nice symposium, a feel-good symposium for democracies. Um, Am I being too cynical here? What is your take on it? Well, just on uh, just on numbers, why don't we start with that? 400 and something million dollars to support democracies around the world. 
when our U.S. defense budget is uh, ballooning to more than 800 billion. So it, it gives you an indication in, in terms of uh, what democracy may possibly mean for the U.S. government uh, by, you know, flexing its muscle militarily, but then dropping peanuts when it comes to actually uh, advancing democracies around the world. So this, of course, uh, has a lot of the smell of a hypocrisy in it. And that is why this summit is being taken with such a pin, uh, sort of pinch of salt, because some of those uh, invited countries have quite a long track uh, uh, and checkered history when it comes to democracy. May that be the Philippines or may that be Ukraine or Pakistan, actually. So uh, when you have those countries invited and you're like, okay, you look around the room and you're like, ah, what is actually a democracy? What does uh, constitute a democracy? And what are our aspirations when it comes to the um, ideals of democracy? And is that being met in the U.S.? Is the economic inequality, racial inequality, discrimination, and uh, an array of issues that we are facing in the U.S.? And here is why so many people can so easily point to the fact that this summit doesn't really make things different for the masses. I don't think so. And does it actually then create a, a club of um, uh, those who are in and those who are out and those that are out are our enemies and those that are in that are our friends? And then what does that mean in terms of responsibility when tomorrow the Pakistani government says, oh, look, we are a democracy. So don't come and point a finger at us when we jail our journalists or dissidents or or we cut down on uh, freedoms in civil society and so forth. So we have to be careful when we make these type of groupings and separations and instead actually have a sober look at uh, what is uh, the shortcomings of our own approach to democracy and most importantly to also not uh, view this so naively that the United States is gathering 100 countries and is that for democracy or is that its own form of being able to show its global reach and its ability to be the vanguard of one group or another, at least from the founding fathers, which again is a problem because the founding fathers didn't include women, that may already in itself be outdated. So we have and to they be were slave bit, owners. Uh, and yeah, yeah, let's see, why don't, why don't we touch on that too? I mean, what I'm trying to say is that like uh, when a group of men are sat around the, the table uh, have stolen the land from the indigenous populations have enslaved others that they brought from thousands of kilometers away and to talk about democracy democracy for whom if you're making a couple of zeros next to uh, um, what you already are making a democracy is very sweet for you in the u.s but if you are uh, below the poverty line, if you have no social meetings if you're living within the cutthroat greed of the capitalistic system then then uh, we have a lot of people who are victims to this democracy because this democracy at its core is corrupt. A lot of what you just said is just so dark. Is there any hopeful point? I mean, part of what supporters and advocates of, of the summit said, you know, aside from the Biden administration, was that it's important to offer a counterweight to the creeping authoritarian uh, authoritarian trend that's been taken over the world, right? Like previous democracies that we're seeing in Eastern mm-hmm. Europe, like Hungary and Poland, uh, have taken decidedly uh, autocratic uh, turn. India, likewise, as we're going to discuss yep. in a moment. Um, isn't it important, actually, even symbolically so, doesn't the summit serve a purpose 
in, in showing that, hey, there are still democracies around the world. There is an attempt to fight back as in that inadequate as, as it seems. I do agree that the, the amount that the U.S. promised seems paltry in, in comparison to, to other priorities. Um, but isn't it also still important to, to give people around the world hope? I mean, there, there are democratic uprisings in Sudan happening. You know, yeah. there are activists in Tunisia trying to make sure that their hard-won <laughs> gains since the Arab Spring are not, you know, don't go by the wayside. You know, that there are still activists working under extreme danger and threat of, of physical violence and safety in Myanmar. Mm-hmm. There's still hope. Isn't it important for, for those people to, to have something like this? Listen, Maddie, I, listen, I, uh, I'm all for hope. I'm all for like uh, strengthening the power of the people. And it, what I'm suggesting is that uh, having a summit doesn't really fix anything if it's just to, uh, you know, have a nice Photoshop, uh, photo op. In reality, if we want to give real support to the masses, we have to really go and take an introspective view on, on our own government's policies. And here again is why I made that uh, comparison with the Department of Defense uh, budget that is so large. Because then what are the priorities of a democracy? If the democracy had its priorities in the welfare of the populace, then its defense budget would not be 800 billion. <laughs> this is what I'm trying to indicate that actually for us to be able to support democracies around the world, let's begin on our own table. Let's begin in our own countries. And by making the changes within Washington in terms of policy, then we will actually be able to go and strengthen these movements across the world with much more legitimacy, but also be able to have the means to be able to do so, not again through force, crude force, but through actually dialogue, because that's the basis of democracy, dialogue, understanding, prioritization, and finding what will allow for our human race to be able to be advanced in all of the spheres of life, may that be social, economic, political, and so forth. So those are reflective of what we see as priorities within our own countries. And that's the crux of the matter. So if I want to support democracies around the world, and I'm an American, I would advocate, I will campaign within the United States to make sure that if I do have a voice, if democracy does work in the US through collective, you know, sort of a gathering of minds and views, then hopefully if we can make those changes, then oh boy, it will have a major ripple effect across the world. But uh, when it comes to hope, Matthew, I'm very hopeful. I'm trying to get rid of weapons of mass destruction in the Middle East. I better be hopeful. <laughs> it's a tall order. I have faith. I have faith in your abilities to, to get it accomplished. So, Ahmad, let's turn our attention to one of the countries that was an, actually an, an attendee at uh, Biden's Democracy Summit. So the world's largest democracy isn't doing so well. There was a piece in The Atlantic recently about India's increasing clampdown on the free press, specifically their campaign to discredit and legally prosecute Muslim journalist Rana Ayub. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi is a Hindu nationalist. 
who's a party has ushered in a new raft of laws rolling back civil liberties and protections for minorities and has taken an adversarial approach to critics. Not, uh, notably, the Modi government passed a law which prohibited Muslims from neighboring countries from seeking asylum or citizenship in India and revoked the constitutionally enshrined autonomy of the Muslim-majority state of Jammu and Kashmir. The government has also deployed police forces to quell protests against Modi's rule and arrested a number of journalists on seemingly trumped-up charges. So, Ahmad, India is an attendee at the Biden summit, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and is also in nuclear power. How do you think the state-sanctioned anti-Muslim sentiment may affect relationship with its other uh, nuclear power state that is its neighbor, Pakistan, um, that is majority Muslim? You know, I think that the Modi government has taken several steps to show that they believe India to be a Hindu country first, a democracy second, if that. Uh, I think they've taken measures, everything from encouraging violent protesters to go after Muslims for presumably slaughtering cows, which are sacred to some Hindus, to banning egg carts uh, in Gujarat, which used to be the state that uh, Modi ran as governor before he became prime minister. What do you think this does to the state of nuclear relations in the region or just in general, the health of democracy? I mean, let's start off by saying that the tensions between Pakistan and India are decades old. You've already touched on that early on in our conversation. So when we see what is happening in India, where the uh, Hindu nationalist trend is strengthening, and as you said, democracy is taking a back seat, this is of a high concern for the largest minority in India, which is about 100 million Muslims. And uh, they are now have um, a target on them for being Muslims. And that, of course, would increase tensions Uh, within India, amongst the Hindus and Muslims, and lately even Christians, that we have seen some steps being taken to also um, marginalize the Christian minority in India. And this can then be picked up as another uh, sticking point between the two neighboring countries, two nuclear-armed countries of India and Pakistan. And another flashpoint that could uh, erupt and become even more complicated As you mentioned, since both India and Pakistan are nuclear weapon states, even though they've had previous skirmishes, we haven't had this uh, acceleration on nationalist uh, sentiments in India under the leadership of Prime Minister Modi that is in a trajectory that could lead to this hyper-identity politics again at play, where they will see and the demonization of Muslims within India can easily then extend to the neighborhood, the region, and specifically with their animosity towards Pakistan. And if in the near future, another skirmish occurs, possibly over Kashmir, that is now under major um, uh, stress with these new laws that have been passed that strips it of its uh, autonomy. Um, This could be a major factor that could spread into a much larger conflict and just to give you an example of what could happen if there is, um, there was a 2010 study of the humanitarian consequences of a nuclear war between two nuclear weapon states that are not Russia and United States. The example they picked was actually Pakistan and India. And if there is a, a, a localized nuclear war between these two countries, it will result in atmospheric changes uh, for our planet and lead to almost 2 billion people dying from starvation. So this nuclear winter that we're talking about, 
while we worry about US and uh, Russia for having the most nuclear warheads, India and Pakistan could be a trigger point that can result again on not just causing havoc and uh, devastation within this uh, region, but beyond uh, across the world. So we hope that uh, you know the trends will change. Let's be hopeful, as you always say, and to identify the fact that within India, being the largest democracy in the world, there is still some institutions, there are still some uh, foundations that are there that could then result in uh, uh, drawing back this uh, uh, trajectory towards uh, nationalistic tendencies from pursuing further, let's say, non-democratic policies and laws. You know, I want to strike a hopeful note as well, right? But <laughs> I do think it's concerning because when figures like Modi, if they ever find their popularity waning, whether it's because of a reawakening in the democratic sense of the Indian people uh, or because, you know, he, he dips in the polls again, he still enjoys a large measure of popularity. Figures like him always resort to, and we've seen this in the last days of the Trump presidency across the ocean, um, they, they always resort to war as a tool for for unification and there's no easier target than the neighbor you've been fighting with for the past eight decades do you think that there is or there is reason for concern that if modi ever finds himself on the outs or his party the p uh, the bjp that they would resort to instigating a war with pakistan i don't want to encourage conjecture here right especially <laughs> doomsaying but, you know, when, when U.S. officials were, were doing an assessment, I think, their, their nuclear posture a few years back, to a lot of people's surprise, while they cited North Korea as a major threat, they said most likely nuclear conflict was India and Pakistan. Do you think there's any possibility to do that? I mean, because the Pakistani military has also been ceding significant authorities to civilian powers, right? The, the opposite trend has been going on in Pakistan. Pakistan has been slowly, haltingly democratizing, right? They have a civilian prime minister who's very bullish on civilian authority and power, Imran Khan, um, and a military that still plays an outsized role in, in, in everyday life, uh, but diminishing nonetheless. Like they're, they're not as dominant as they used to be 10, 20 years ago, uh, since Pakistan has had its first free and fair elections in 2013 do you think there's a chance that this works in their favor as well where they're like oh okay well you know since modi is being so bullish on war we may need to retake over things and you know cooler heads do not prevail let's keep in mind that the pakistani military still plays an important role in the policy making in pakistan yes. and they are the ones who uh, hold the keys to the nuclear uh, arsenal that the uh, pakistan possesses That's so true. let's not forget that uh, and they have a huge role in the economy, in uh, an array of areas within Pakistan. But what you pointed out is that, yes, there is a possibility of another war happening. And here, while there is a concern over India and Pakistan, let's not forget that there's another big country that's a nuclear weapons state that borders India, and that's China. Yeah. And the Chinese geopolitical game that they're playing is they're backing for Pakistan. And India and China also have their own differences uh, along their borders so, uh, and their views on Tibet and so forth. So there is, um, there's a lot of reasons to go to war. Uh, there's never a shortage of that. 
If it does, and we see now in the past few years under uh, Prime Minister Modi, the, the Indian defense budget has also uh, uh, ballooned. And we see that it's becoming now one of the largest importers of weapons in the world. What are all those weapons for? What are they trying to protect? Or who are they trying to then find, uh, use these weapons on? Um, these are all major concerns. We shouldn't rule it out. But again, the only avenue forward is to have the right pressure points being applied. When you have the United States providing a, a, a strategic nuclear alliance with India, even though it's based on civilian technologies, knowing very well that that know-how then, then can be diverted into weaponization for a country like India, which is also not a member of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. That goes the same with Pakistan, with their backing from China and the fact that the Saudis bankrolled uh, Pakistan's nuclear weapons program. So you have, again, a multi multitude of actors at play here and how they then use their relationships to be able to make sure that these two countries, Pakistan and India, do not then venture into a nuclear war uh, requires, again, diplomacy to be played a part and the hypocrisy of providing such strategic uh, alliances on nuclear technologies to India to not just come uh, on the basis of uh, cooperation on nuclear, but rather to then put some strings attached to that uh, relationship that makes sure that at least there is some accountability and oversight on how India nuclear weapons posture will look like today and in the future. I, I would be remiss to not point out that India does have a no first use policy when it comes to its nuclear mm. arsenal, uh, meaning they will not strike first. China, I believe, has the same policy, even though the Chinese have been known uh, recently to, to increase their nuclear stockpile for reasons as of yet unidentified. But Ermad, <laughs> um, I want to turn your attention to a weapon that is no less destructive, but mm. has been receiving a lot more attention um, recently in the news. So... A private Israeli intelligence firm called the NSO Group has been accused by human rights organizations and cybersecurity experts of selling spyware to countries that then use the technology to surveil activists, opposition figures, and journalists who are critical of their rule. Clients of the NSO Group, which receives significant support from the government of Israel, have also been known to use software licensed by the company to spy on foreign emissaries and diplomats, with targets including U.S. State Department employees and French cabinet officials. Last month, the U.S. Commerce Department placed the NSO on its entity list, which prohibits the company from purchasing American technologies. In effect, it sanctioned the company. Apple has also filed a lawsuit seeking a ban on the use of its product by NSO and unspecified damages for the, and I'm quoting here from the lawsuit, targeting of Apple users and violating the company's terms of service. This is the second lawsuit against the beleaguered firm with Facebook filing suit against the group in 2019 for targeting its WhatsApp users. <laughs> So the actions of the NSO group, which is mm. ostensibly a private organization, even though the Israeli government has been lobbying the U.S. government on its behalf for lifting sanctions, yep. are somewhat reflective of the, wide uh, of the wider reliance on cyber tools uh, as a weapon of choice. Just recently, a report in the New York Times detailed how the Israelis and Iranians were using cyber weapons to target civilians in each other's countries. I think the Israelis um, shut down all the gas pumps in Iran, and Iran retaliated by hacking a dating site and leaking all sorts of embarrassing information about political figures. I don't think those two things are equal, <laughs> but, you know, uh, they're starting to target civilians rather than military targets, as was the norm. So do you think cyber weapons should be included under the weapons of mass destruction, WMD umbrella? 
that you guys work on. What do you foresee as the future of this digital arms race? I know your organization is hoping for a Middle East free from weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. And a lot of the clients of this company were actually Middle Eastern countries. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think the, the most notorious target for the NSO group, um, and that was perhaps one, one of one of the reasons why the Biden administration took the unusual step of sanctioning it um, was Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist who was murdered uh, at the orders of the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Um, and so there are like countries in the region buying it. It's not just like foreign countries and it's being deployed against human rights activists and people who we want uh, in place bolstering democracy. Do you think cyber weapons should be considered a weapon of mass destruction? And what do you see is the future of this digital arms race? So these are uncharted waters. The, the cyber tools that have been used recently and in a couple of years have increasingly become, as you said, the weapon of choice for many of these governments and some other entities. And because it's so difficult to pinpoint who is actually conducting such cyber attacks, it becomes uh, um, even more difficult to then have accusations, uh, have some international law that will allow for some, um, you know, legal procedures to take place because we don't have, unlike when we address nuclear, chemical and biological weapons, where we have international conventions and treaties that provide some level of um, verification, monitoring, uh, restriction and destruction of such weapons. We don't have one for the uh, cyber warfare uh, or the cyber tools that are being used. So first and foremost, we're starting off on a quite a weak uh, position whereby there is no international law. There is no uh, easy way to say who uh, has done what. So and, uh, to be able to be, you know, just to say, deny. States can deny any of these acts. Yes, those uh, petrol pumps were shut down in Iran and Iran accused Israel. But is there proof? Is there a smoking gun? No. And as we see a clear example that you brought up, NSO is a private company a private company that is providing its software to clients. And those clients, well, they can be governments, businesses, individuals, and others. So how are we going to now venture into the private sector to control who they trade with, who their customers should be, and what limitations we can place on these things? The sanctions that the United States has placed on NSO is quite an interesting development because rarely does the United States place any type of sanctions on Israel and its, uh, um, its uh, behavior within the country or in the region or beyond. Well, so, maybe due to the fact that they targeted U.S. State Department yes, employees and U.S. Yes. diplomats, that that may have something to do with it. Um, I think they also targeted the French prime minister, who's like, you know, second after the president in power. That, that may well, have we, struck the U.S. Well, Matthew, we have to be can, very clear here. Yeah. First of all, first of all, it's not NSO that did that. Am I right? NSO no. sold its software sold and somebody software. else did it. Yes, exactly. All right. That so is correct. This, so the sanctions, yes, the sanctions put uh, this issue on limelight. Am I right? We now have some focus on this. How do we address this? This could set a precedence when we see with Facebook, with Apple, uh, taking some legal actions on NSO. We have to see if there is a breakthrough and there's a result of these type of uh, like suing NSO and see that's what happens. And that's going to be battled out in, in the courts. But what it will do is that it will set a precedence. Then we will know that we can refer back to that judgment in then expanding and targeting other 
software cyber companies that are again providing these type of uh, tools and uh, facilities to very, very, uh, let's say, undemocratic, authoritarian, repressive governments across, especially in the Middle East. And we've got to put a cap on it, but it's going to be very difficult if we don't have an international consensus or a treaty or some type of convention that allows for state parties and individuals, companies to have um, an international court that they can go to because increasingly this will become very difficult. We know, we know right now as I'm speaking to you that the key infrastructures, these from your water, electricity grid, to other critical infrastructures in China, in Russia, in the United States, all of those countries at a state level have penetrated it, have placed their own uh, uh, cyber uh, software or or, uh, um, malicious um, viruses that are ready to be triggered that can literally bring a standstill to the way we function as a society and economy. So this is a real threat. And if the definition of a weapons of mass destruction is an indiscriminate attack on a broad, uh, wide uh, scope of individuals, environment, and so forth, well, cyber warfare definitely fits that profile and that definition. And uh, I, I assure you, it is definitely on the radar of the Middle East Treaty Organization because not only are we looking at weapons of mass destruction, but the means of their delivery. And cyber attacks on nuclear, chemical, biological facilities is a major, major threat. And it's been done before. Cyber warfare has become an increasingly dangerous and uncharted waters for how we're going to address this in the near future. But it is on everybody's radar. I assure you that. I do want to point out a few unusual things. One, the fact that the NSO group is a private firm, you're absolutely correct. But the fact that we know about it, it has an office address, right? There is a spokesperson there. Most of most of the cyber tools you see nowadays are either in the hands of nation states, right? Mm-hmm. So the government of China, the government of the United States, the government of Russia, the government of Israel, so, so on and so forth. Uh, but any private firm that sells this kind of information is not likely to be out in the open as the NSO group is. The NSO operates like a fairly standard business. Um, And the Israeli government, of course, I should mention, says that they're um, subject to strict export controls. Again, that seems to have failed at some level there. That's one, one thing I wanted to point out is that most cyber tools are bandied around in black markets, right? Um, they're not sold out in the open. Uh, there is no client list that you can reference or subpoena in a lawsuit. And so that makes it difficult to legislate against something like that when you don't know who's selling the services. Um, the second point I wanted to reach out is governments seem to be wanting to have their cake and eat it at the same time too, right? So the government of the United States has come out very forcefully against cyber attacks that damage civilian targets um, that affect people's livelihoods. But at the same time, they did not rule out and have fought against regulations that ban states' cyber espionage, obviously because the United States benefits from it. You know, very famously in 2015, when President Obama confronted Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, about um, the theft of intellectual property from, from you know American firms, they both agreed that industrial espionage will stop, but there was an unspoken agreement that state-level espionage which they considered 
fully lawful and within the bounds of international law, even though there's no international treaty that regulates it. And, you know, once Obama left office, China did not just intensify its state espionage. They also intensified industrial espionage. Um, And you raise a very important issue here, the, the issue of deniability. You can't tell who did what. How do you legislate against that? I think the closest we're going to get to accountability in this case is the private lawsuits from a company like Apple. Those are like lawsuits in civil court. These are open to public interpretation. These are two companies suing each other. But I find it difficult to believe that even if there was political will to to forego the obvious interest you get from spying on somebody else using digital tools. How do you legislate against something like this? Let's say there's a law banning attacks on critical infrastructure. How do you know that the person who attacked your electrical grid was Russia or was China or North Korean hackers or Iranian hackers or Israeli hackers? I think even if they do know, even if the country that was attacked does know, they're not likely to reveal that information, right? Because it yeah. reveals their own sources and methods of how they found out, right? That means that they have somehow infiltrated uh, the systems of the attacking country. How do you solve such a circular problem where you don't know what you don't know. And because you don't know what you don't know, you can't do anything. Thank you, Matthew. That's going to be an easy question to answer. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I try to make it easy. No, wait, wait, wait. You, you know, again, it boils down to this. Uh, when we go, again, I'm going to fall back to uh, another example, which is, which is again, the Cuban missile crisis. When that happened, when we got in, in the 60s close to a nuclear war, that's when, wait a minute, we're going to do something about this. That's when the Soviet Union and the United States, in the height of the Cold War, engaged one another in diplomacy and led to a reduction of our uh, nuclear weapons. They uh, formed a direct link of communication so that there's going to be no misunderstanding. Even though there's still, you know, have this, you know, mutually assured destruction, the mad doctrine that you've discussed earlier. In the same way, when we look at cyber attacks, when we look at the fact that not only can the United States cause a major damage to the Chinese and the Russians and um, other adversarial countries, they can do the same to us. So there needs to be at some point, and the discussions have started, they have started, how do we actually put this genie back in the bottle in terms of like the consequences of cyber warfare that can erupt all across the world, that is actually happening right now. That's the crazy part, that every day there's a very interesting map of, if I can get you the source, I will find it for you, where it actually displays in real time, the number of cyber attacks that are happening, and it only reflects, I think, 0.1% of the attacks. So we're already there. There's already a major hot cyber war occurring now. And so at some point, when it passes a threshold, when it is, it comes out into, uh, into our real life, when actually our water systems start to shut down, our electricity is just go God off. forbid. <laughs> I'm just saying that, you know, we, sometimes we need to have a wake-up call that this is going to be the new reality. And not only that, the advancements in these technologies, from killer robots to artificial intelligence to machine learning, to the fact that these become extremely more sophisticated. And if you couple that with the fact that all of those nuclear weapon states, instead of reducing their nuclear weapons, you know what they're doing? They're upgrading and uh, making new classes of nuclear warheads, 
with new operating systems that are actually much easier to then be hacked and then possibly result in another nuclear war that can go through their control systems. These are all real, possible, plausible um, options that are out there in terms of what cyber warfare can result in. They've been played out now. We can see even from you know how we're seeing the swar- swarming uh, drone attacks between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia that gave us a real-life example of how these other forms of autonomous weapons are being deployed. So we are in a new world where we have autonomous weapons uh, um, coupled with uh, cyber warfare and more sophisticated uh, technologies that are just getting out of control and there's been yet a real political will from key countries to come together and agree some on some parameters. How do we go about making sure that this doesn't result in a complete catastrophe at any point in time in the future? So we're in a very critical time. I don't have an exact answer for you, except always falling back to we need to find a way for these adversarial countries to sit down and make the differences that they have to actually discuss what the hell is their problem and figure out a diplomatic solution to these concerns. And the only way to do it is through dialogue, building trust, building confidence, and realizing that they all have within their power either to go towards war or to support some possible, at least not even peaceful, but normal set of uh, realities. You heard the man, everyone. Talk to each other. Nothing. Come on. Yeah. Hot cup of tea and some talking. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can my listeners find you? All right. I'm I'm on all the social media plugins, but I think the easiest one would be at E-K-I-Y, K-I-Y-A-E-I. And more easily, just visit us on our website, wmd-free.me the Middle East Street Organization. You'll find you me know, there. That domain sounds like you're offering free WMD weapons. <laughs> are asking for a friend here. Where can I acquire one? And Matiai, thank you so much for joining us on the My show. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Breaking the Net. We will be back next week with more breaking news. I'm your host, Mehdi Mahal, and I will see you next time. <laughs>